0: You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn East. Our Advent series this year is entitled, God Revealed. In these four sermons, as we look forward to celebrating the birth of Jesus, we are studying key stories from the Old Testament where God shows up and reveals himself
1: to his people. As we welcome uh, Jonathan Pennington to uh, the pulpit to preach, I want you to join me in today's scripture reading from Exodus 33 and 34. And so if you're able, I invite you at this time to stand with us for the reading of God's word. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
0: Hey, good morning. Good to be with you. I'd like you to imagine with me that you are an adventurer, hardcore backpacker, one who likes to backpack by yourself several days deep into the wilderness, far from all civilization, and just live in the wild. Some of you I know actually are like that. Some of you are the exact opposite of that. But either way, if you can just imagine with me. So imagine that you are deep in the wilderness in Montana. You're a few days hike away from any civilization, And you're going down an incline, and you slip, and you you fall, and you lose your backpack, It's, it's lost, and you tear the ligaments in your knee so badly that you can't walk. And so you're completely helpless and powerless. And you've been this way for about 12 hours now, the cold is setting in, and you're getting desperate. And then... Completely unexpectedly, you see, like, the dust of of something coming towards you, and it's clearly a vehicle. It's a long ways off, but it comes towards you, and then eventually, across all this roadless terrain, this huge black F-350 pulls up, right, and out steps this muscular, uh, powerful, competent man, and you can't believe it. You're saved. I mean, there was no hope for this. Now, the situation is a little unsettling because you don't know where this guy has come from. And most oddly, he's completely masked and doesn't talk to you. And I know masks don't sound weird, but imagine, imagine normally that would be weird. And especially out in the wilderness, And he doesn't talk to you, only communicates to you with hand signals. But what else can you do? So he, he helps you, gives you some food and medicine, opens up the back of his truck, gives you what you need, picks you up, puts you in the cab of the truck, and you go off on your journey. And it's The if you're going is slow. But he gives you all that you need, and you're going along. And again, he still doesn't talk to you. So he's masked. He only communicates with hand signals, doesn't say a word. But you see that he's clearly a competent person. At one pit stop, you almost step on a rattler. He grabs it and takes care of it. So you're very impressed. But as the journey goes on, you begin to worry, like, who is this guy? Can I really trust him? And why won't he just take off his mask and let me see? Is, is his face cruel or is, it, is he a nice person? Who is this? And so maybe it's from just delusion of dehydration or just paranoia. But at the next stop, he goes away from the truck for a little while. He's doing something. And you decide you're going to slash all the tires and puncture a hole in the gas tank. And then he comes back. What's he going Do. I start with this imagined situation, as weird as it may be, because the story behind our biblical text for today is remarkably similar to us. Instead of it being you or me in the wilderness, it's the people of Israel. And instead of this mysterious masked man, it is God himself. And the question is what is going to happen? Well, today as we continue in our Advent series of messages that are all focusing on God revealing himself to the world, we're going to look at the story from the Old Testament book of Exodus where God's people are in a desperate situation and then God shows up. But the story ends up being not so much about God's power to rescue, though he does that, it's about God revealing to the world what he is really like. So I'm going to pause and pray once more, and then we're going to jump into our story of Exodus and see how it comes all the way down to Jesus and the story of Christmas. So let me pause once more and pray for God to open our hearts and minds. Our Heavenly Father, we are glad to to acknowledge that this work of opening the Bible and talking with each other and singing and all these things, these are not just, this is not just a human activity. We need you to reveal yourself, even as you did to Moses and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and millions of other people. We need you, God, to speak to us now. And so we'd ask you in Jesus' name that you would do that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have a Bible, if you want to turn to the book of Exodus, you can, or we'll put some verses on the screen there. Maybe you're brand new to the Bible. Maybe you've been reading it for decades. Either way, I bet the story that we just heard read in the scripture reading and that I'm talking about here is probably not super familiar to you from Exodus 33 and 34, even though it turns out to be a hugely important story in the Bible that really resonates and reverberates throughout the rest of the Bible. In the beginning of the book of Exodus, we meet Israel. We find Israel, the God's chosen people. You remember the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob? God changes his name to Israel. We find them, the chosen people, the blessed people of God, not living in prosperity and shalom, but instead in a foreign nation, Egypt, as slaves, as a poor class of slaves in great bondage in Egypt. But God shows up. And, throw, and through Moses, God miraculously rescues Israel out of its bondage in Egypt and begins leading the, on this long journey into and through the wilderness to the promised land. And God makes an amazing, precious covenant with them. It's like a marriage where he says, I'm going to promise to take care of you and provide for you. And all that God asks in response is faithfulness, love, and honor. He doesn't need anything from the Israelites. He doesn't need any special privileges or anything. He just wants to be loved and honored rightly and faithfulness as a response. And so in Exodus chapters 19 to 31, God gives to his chosen people all kinds of blessings and all kinds of instructions that will result in their flourishing guidance for how to relate to each other and how to relate to God. And the Israelites are amazed. They are rightly in awe of God. They've seen his miracles. They saw Him rescue them from slavery in Egypt. They saw the plagues. They saw the opening of the Red Sea where they passed through and then a collapsing of it on on the Egyptian army that was trying to kill them. They saw the miraculous provision of food and water in the wilderness. They saw the fiery mountain where God went up and met with God and then came back with this covenant and sealed the deal. And that's all good. It's a little unsettling. But it's all good. God is clearly powerful, and he has done them well, even though they still don't know exactly what to make of him. And then we come to Exodus chapter 32. While Moses is up on the mountain, he's meeting with God for a long time, the people down in the valley, they begin to be restless and anxious, and they begin to wonder whether this whole thing was really a good idea. Wasn't it better to be back in Egypt, just like us in our imagined hiking story? And then they do what is certainly one of the stupidest things in the history of humanity. Even though the true and invisible God has just rescued them and provided for them and offered them a special covenant relationship they decide that instead of that, they would rather have a statue god, just like the rest of the world. Because you see, a statue god is super convenient because you can see it, you can move it around, you can make up stuff about what it wants and needs. You don't have to have a personal relationship with the statue god. It's a power that you can manipulate when you need something. You can do whatever you want with your life. It's just that you have to obey whatever rules and sacrifices, and then you can get whatever benefits this statue God gives you. It's a religion they want, not a relationship. And so, even while Moses is up on the mountain meeting with the true God, his chosen people are down in the valley and they pile together all their gold and they make a cow. (laughs) They make a cow and they say, this will be our God, and they begin to bow down before it, and they offer sacrifices to this golden cow that they made with their bracelets and earrings and say, this is our God who does all this stuff for us. So stupid, so foolish, so dishonoring. The best analogy I've ever heard to describe this, what the Israelites did in relationship to God, is like someone committing adultery on their wedding night. This is how serious and insane and evil this is. So how's God going to respond? Well, naturally, he's angry. He's dishonored. He has every right to end the covenant that they've already desecrated. Moses stands in the gap and pleads for God not to do so. But who knows what God's going to do? God is still a masked mystery to them. They've seen his power. They've seen his strength but they've also completely blown it. They have dishonored him. They've broken the deal he made. They have desecrated the marriage relationship. So Moses and the Israelites have no idea what God is going to do. And what is he going to do? Well, we might say, well, God is forgiving and gracious, and we could turn to a bunch of Bible verses about this. But you need to realize that at this point in the history of the world, there was no Bible. God showed up to Moses at the burning bush. He made it clear that he was God and humans were not, that God is existence from eternity and will be, and we are only dust and earth and will return there. That's it. The people have seen God's power. They felt his presence. But now they have failed him completely in the deal he made, and they have no idea what God's going to do in this kind of situation. Maybe it's like the first time you broke something at home and dad is coming home and you don't know what he's going to be like. He broke his prized possession or something. So in Exodus 33, Moses has a huge ask from God. He says to God, let me see you how you really are. Let me see your glory. That is, let me clearly see what you are really like. Moses is asking to see God's face, to look through the mask of fire and volcano and thunder and lightning to really understand what is God really like? Because, you know, you can, you can know someone from a book or, or hearsay or seeing someone from across the room at a party or something. And and maybe from from behind, you can kind of make out the shape of somebody, and maybe this has happened to you. I've heard stories of, like, you think that's your spouse, and you go up to somebody in the store and put your arm around them or something, then it turns out not to be. You can kind of tell who somebody is from the backside, but you can't really know someone till you look them in the face. To really know someone for who they are, you need to see them in their face, to look them in the eye, to hear them, and not just... Hear them described. Such a one of the weird things about all of us wearing masks right now is that you really don't see someone and it's harder to communicate. And so Moses has quite a request of God let me see you. And what does God say? Well, it was there in the first part of our text that we read. Let me read it for you again, Exodus 33. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim you. Before you, my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy, but you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock like a cave, and I will cover you with my hand until I pass by, then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So God's response is very gracious, but he does say that a mere human cannot actually see God fully because his splendor, his glory, his power would be too much. It would kill us if we saw that much. But God does freely choose, he says, to graciously reveal himself to whom he will and he's going to let Moses see a glimpse of his glory, that the, just catch the contrails of God as he goes by, the beautiful power from behind. And so God directs Moses to go up on the mountain. He directs him to make two new stone tablets because he had broken the stone tablets that God had made for the covenant when they broke the covenant with him. He makes two new Tabernis, he goes up on the, on the mountain, and now we come to the second part of this amazing text. In light of all the sin and rebellion, here's what God says. Look at it there in Exodus 34. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there, and he proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord. Let me pause there. This is the name that Dr. Plummer talked about last week that God reveals himself as Yahweh, his personal name. He's willing to give his name away to his people. And notice that he says it, it says that five times, right in this one verse or two here, five times the Lord. And notice, especially that it's repeated, the Lord, the Lord. This is the only place in the entire Bible where God's special name is put right next to each other. The Lord, the Lord. The only place, which means this is super emphatic. What God is about to reveal about himself is the clearest thing he has said or really will ever say in the Bible. So what does he say? Look at it again. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, and here it is. What's God like? A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, means thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's childrens to the third and fourth generation? So this very, this megaton description of God, has five qualities and two characteristics of how God acts. Look at it. Five qualities of how God is. He's is the repeat of the Lord the Lord, he's merciful. We could also translate that as compassionate, that God has a gut level emotional reaction of sympathy and tender-heartedness toward those in need. That God reveals himself as gracious that he responds favorably towards someone's need for desire and desire for mercy and help that he is Long of nose is what the Hebrew says here. He's slow to anger. This is an idiom that's used in Hebrew that the idea of having a short nose would mean that you quickly get angry and your your nose turns red. But God is described as having a long nose. If you have a long nose, you're in good company, which means he is patient. He does not quickly get angry. It means when he is Offended. I mean, when he is he is violated, when he is mis dishonored, he doesn't respond quickly like we do with an anger and a and a retribution. But he's very patient when he's wronged. And then, most of all, it's emphasized with us. He's abounding in these last two things. This is the the culminating thing. He's abounding in these this pair of last things: hesed and emet. Hesed and emet, which we translate the first one. There's no good. English word for this, the single word to describe this idea, but hesed means something like steadfast love or the combination of love and loyalty in a covenant relationship. Even when the other party is faithless and dishonoring, the idea of hesed is that God has a steadfast, abiding, loyal love. And faithfulness or emet, sometimes we translate that true, but it's not true in the kind of flat, scientific sense of like Data that corresponds to reality, but true in the way that a piece of furniture could be true, or in the way that a building can be true, or in the way that a friend can be true in a time of trouble. That means faithful, trustworthy, count honorable. In fact, I'd like you to say those two words, Hesed and Emmet. Hesed and Emmet. Those two words go together a lot in the Bible to describe God. And those are probably the most important descriptions of God in the Bible, that he is always hesed and emet. He is always steadfast, loyally loving in a covenantal way, and he is reliable. And notice that these five descriptions of God are all deeply relational, he could have shown up and said, I'm powerful, I'm independent, I'm free, I can do whatever I want, which is all true. But the way he chooses to reveal himself is deeply relational. That he's patient and kind and, and loving and forgiving and, and, very kind and very slow to be angry. I said there were five characteristics of, how God, of who God is. And then do you notice the two acts? Verse 7. Read that for you again. That he is keeps steadfast love for thousands of generations, and forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, but will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children, to children, so the third and fourth generation. Notice the first characteristic of how God behaves: that He keeps steadfast love and forgives, because His very nature is loyal love. He. Does that he follows through and keeps steadfast love even when his people rebel and disobey and dishonor? God is faithfully and loving and loyal. And notice that he forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. The Bible gives us three different words here that overlap. The point is, every kind of transgression, every kind of a sin that you can imagine, even those most secret ones that you don't want anybody to know about you, God says, I forgive people their sins. It's covered. But then there's also this other part of how he behaves. He says he visits iniquity to the third and fourth generation. And I have to admit, this is confusing. This is uns- everything in me wants to sort of take out a little marker and mark that verse out, don't you? And part of me wishes this wasn't here. Right, Because it seems so disturbing and unsettling after all that God has just said. This seems like it kind of wah, 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 kind of qualifies this or, or makes it somehow not as important. But that would be a huge mistake to not listen to the whole counsel of God to, to try to think that we're wiser than God. Why does God say that he visits the iniquities of the third or fourth generation? What does it mean? There's a very important truth here. Let me point out two things of what this means. First of all, it means that The revelation that God is forgiving and compassionate, that's his very nature, that doesn't mean that there's just a blanket amnesty for everything that happens in the world, all evil and rebellion. If so, God would not be just and there would be total chaos all the time. To be forgiven, we must repent and align with God. In other words, God is making clear to Moses that his very nature is merciful, but that doesn't mean unrepentant rebellion is just looked over and that God doesn't care that they made a golden calf and are dishonoring him and broken their relationship with him or serial killing or rape or any number of other sins. These are forgivable, but only through repentance. God doesn't say there's a blanket amnesty, do whatever you want. If God were this way, It would be a violation of his own faithfulness to justice. There is an appropriate justice to what God says here. He is abounding in forgiveness, but he doesn't simply turn a blind eye to sin. We wouldn't want him to. But this also means, I think more simply, that sin has consequences even when it is forgiven. Sin does have consequences that affect other people and us even when it's forgiven. Even when we are forgiven, that doesn't magically wipe away damage that we have caused to ourselves and others physically, emotionally, mentally, relationally. For the Christian, I do think it means a lot of that damage is often mitigated and you can find healing, but our sin does affect us and other people even if we are forgiven, and it often does for generations. I always think of King David, who was clearly a man of God and who found forgiveness. He writes many Psalms about the forgiveness he received. But if you know David's story, for the next several generations, it had a major effect in his sons and the problems they ran into, the rebellion against him, the suffering in his own life that came about. And David would be the first to say, I brought this on myself, even though God has forgiven me. And this is, friends, why we should never be cavalier about sin. I've heard people express this sentiment, especially guys I've heard a lot of times say, well, I've already blown it, so I might as well go all in. Or I'll do this and ask for forgiveness later. But that's a fundamental misunderstanding of what sin is. It's not just a transaction where you've broken something and then forgiven. It has effects. When we sin, we add bad and evil into the world, and that can affect generations to come, even though we can be forgiven. So this reference to sins affecting three or four generations, it's not, God, it's not saying that God is like vindictive or petty or arbitrary. Those would be the exact opposite of all that he just revealed himself. He is fundamentally forgiving and patient and kind. But it does mean that we must repent. And it does mean that there are consequences to our choices. There's always a mystery to his wisdom that we cannot grasp. And even though, notice that it says that sin has consequences. That's, he says third or fourth generation, but the comparison you're supposed to feel is that God is generous to thousands of generations, incalculable, he says. And even for many of you who have experienced generational sin, effective sin of your parents or grandparents, you know, many of you, that even that can be broken through God's grace, right? Some of you had horrible grandparents who did things to you or parents or others, And yet God stepped in and intervened and broke the chains and broke the pattern and is using you to make a new way. Amen? I was talking with one of you this week who was just sharing very personally about the story of how harsh and demanding and never happy was his father and how devastating that was. And yet, by the grace of God, the son became a Christian, and it did different, it did better by his own children. And even in a super grace, the father later became a Christian as well. Beautiful, a beautiful story. And that's what God can and does do. And I know that's your story as well. So I think we can sum up these seven characteristics, these seven descriptions of God is super abounding in grace and a very small minor note, and appropriate judgment when necessary, but super abounding in grace overflowing in his relationship with us. So the whole thing comes about because of Moses' bold request. How does Moses respond? Look at our last verse there or so. So Moses quickly bowed his head to the earth and worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance." So the, the appropriate response to all of this glory and revelation is humble and awe-filled worship. It's a, it's a bodily response. It's singing. It's, because it's once you see God clearly, then you can see yourself clearly. And once you see God as gracious, that frees you to recognize and to own how broken and sinful we are. And the proper response in that moment is gratitude to God and just begging for forgiveness, which he is glad to give. He started this whole thing. He said, I am compassionate and slow to anger with you. So, what does all that have to do with Advent and Christmas? Well, the answer is everything. Because, have you ever noticed? How that crucial story of Exodus 33 and 34 is picked up right at the beginning of the New Testament in the the fourth gospel, in the gospel of John, when John is laying out his whole beautiful gospel, how he thinks about Exodus 33 and 34. Let me read for you from John chapter 1. In the opening of John, he says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen the one and only Son, who is Himself God, is in the closest relation with the Father. Has made Him known. Do you see the multiple references to Exodus there? The idea of the giving of the law through Moses and no one ever seeing God. Let's let me just unpack for a second what he's saying. John, notice, is very positive about the God of the Old Testament and very positive about the law. He describes it as grace. It is remarkable how mistaken many people are, and I can understand why this comes about, to think that the Old Testament God is like a big meanie, a big grouch, and then the New Testament is God is love, like God changed or something. Like like in the Old Testament, God is kind of harsh, and, and you don't know what to think of him, and then the New Testament, he's just a big warm hug. That is fundamentally mistaken because we just saw in Exodus when God reveals Himself at the beginning of Israel's story. How does He reveal Himself? Not as an aloof. Um, mean, grouchy person, but as gracious and kind and loving and compassionate and slow to anger. The same God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. He doesn't change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so there's no change in God's nature. He has always been gracious and kind and loving. And that's why John says that the, what came through Jesus Christ was grace upon another grace that had already been given. The law was a grace, The law was God revealing himself and making a gracious covenant relationship with his people. So what's the difference? The difference between what has happened through Jesus Christ and what happened through Moses is that Moses was a human instrument through which God gave this grace of the law. But now the incarnation is God himself taking on flesh and becoming in flesh grace and truth. Do you hear those words, grace and truth? That's Hesed and Emmet, translated into Greek, translated into the New Testament. Hesed, steadfast, loyal love. This is a description of God's grace towards us, that his attitude and his heart toward us is patient and kind and loving and compassionate and true. That's the same word. That's this Emmet idea coming into the New Testament as faithfulness. So to describe Jesus Christ as full of grace and truth, is saying he is the very embodiment, the incarnation of all that God revealed to us as he did way back in Exodus 34. And you see the difference between Jesus and Moses here also fundamentally focuses on the ability to see God in the face. As John says, no one has seen God, but Jesus, who is divine himself. Jesus does see God face to face. He is with God in the beginning because he is divine. And now he, in turn, through his incarnation, reveals and manifests the seeing of God to the world. Moses asked to see God's glory, but no one fully could. But now what we are celebrating at Christmas and central To the Christian faith is that the word, God himself, became flesh and dwelt with us and we can see his glory. We can actually see God for the first time because we see Jesus. In his person, Jesus manifested the character of God. He didn't just point to it like Moses did. The character of God is described visibly in the flesh of Jesus. What Moses heard we can now see the New Testament is saying. And this, friends, this is the Christian hope and belief. This is why Christmas is more than warm memories and sentiments and presents, all good stuff that I love, but Christmas is claiming that the invisible, mysterious, all-powerful, ultimately unknowable God of the Old Testament has now become visible, revealed, willing to be weak, and knowable through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That is what Christmas is actually saying, that that reality, the God who made us, has become flesh. Listen to the words we sing from one of the best carols of all time, Hark the Herald. It says, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Before God was veiled, if you go on in Exodus, you'll see that it talks about Moses had to wear a veil and God was still ultimately veiled. He's in the Holy of Holies behind a veil. Now the veil is is ripped away because God has become flesh and we can see, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. You can actually see God in Jesus Christ. That is amazing. So what does this mean for us today as we head into Christmas? Well, I was reminded this week of the famous quote by A.W. Tozer. Maybe some of you know this. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Why? How do you really view God today In relationship to you. I mean, really. What do you think God thinks about you? Do you really believe that his heart and actions towards you are what we just read? That he is gracious, merciful, compassionate, slow to anger, forgiving every kind of sin, abounding in steadfast and loyal love, When we think about God, that is the most important thing about us because what you and I think about how God views you shapes and marks and stamps and guides your life more than you realize. You see, we all have this recording playing deeply in our souls about ourselves, telling us. We have sentences and statements and stories that shape how we view ourselves and they tell us what we think about ourselves and how to relate to the world. And we've gotten this recording fundamentally from our parents. If you pause and listen to it, you'll hear that many moments from early on and things your parents said to you, but also our siblings and our friends and advertising and experiences we've had in the world. And that recording is going on all the time. You may have learned to not try to listen to it by covering up with success and achievement and escape because it's too painful. But that recording probably has some good words in it, but I'm sure there's lots of bad as well. You're not attractive enough. You need to hide this shameful thing about yourself. You're a hassle. You're too emotional. You're not nice enough. You better work hard, or you're going to be a loser. I think at my funeral, I hope with love and affection, my children will probably laugh and say, yeah, Dad, also used to say, if you don't work hard at school, you're not going to get a good job, and you'll be a loser. I try to be a good dad, but not my best moment, right? You might blow this whole thing. You have voices telling you about yourself that are deep. And I guarantee you there are wounds in those voices as well. This week, at this past week at Wednesday Night Men's Bible Study, I asked several of the men to share a time to reflect on a time when someone insulted them which is something most of us don't want to remember, but a couple of the men very boldly shared very deep moments from years past when someone said something really harsh to them, and years later, it's still playing in the recording of their souls. You know what I mean? Now, here is why this is so important. Those recordings are telling you about who you are, and they are motivating a lot of what you do with your time and energy and how you relate to other people, whether you realize it or not. They are telling you how the world is and how to find your way in it. And again, for some of you, these recordings have been so devastating. And if your circumstances haven't enabled you to cover them up with success, you are defeated. Maybe you can't even get out of bed. But there is something infinitely more important and powerful about you than any of those sentences or messages that you have been listening to all your life. And that is what God thinks about you. That is what God thinks about and how he relates to you. And what is the soul deep recording that God wants you to hear today? How does God view you in the midst of all your brokenness and all your failure? It is this, that he is full of mercy, that he is overflowing with compassion, that he is patient, that he is not quick to be angry with you, that he is overflowing with steadfast and loyal love that you have not known from any parent or spouse or friend. That is the truest thing about you and the message of the Bible to you today revealed most fully in Jesus Christ who became flesh. And he is hesed and Emmet, He is truth and faithfulness and grace toward us in Jesus Christ. And as we see that, As we see Jesus Christ, then we become like him because that is the place of freedom. This is the great hope. This is what we're celebrating at Christmas, that God became a baby. He grew, he lived, he died, he was resurrected and ascended so that we are not stuck in our broken patterns and frustrations and weaknesses and failures and generational sins that affect us from our parents. But as the Apostle Paul says, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, we see him are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Can you believe that? That because God has become flesh and has opened the way to be in a relationship with him, we can actually see him. And as we see him, we become like him. We are freed. We are forgiven and we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. That is amazing. And that is the hope that our faith is centered on that we are celebrating here at Christmas. Let me pray.
1: I'm Kevin Jamieson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info
0: about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com slash east.